Welcome to the Aratay Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Andrea Staines, Non-Executive Director for QIC, Good Start Early Learning, and the New South Wales Transport Advisory Board. Lovely to have you here today for another episode of the Aratay Podcast. Uh, It's great to have another female guest, and I'm looking forward to this wonderful conversation with Andrea Staines. But before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about Arate and the podcast for those people who haven't listened before. Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential. And this podcast is designed for people wanting to achieve their full career potential by being able to listen to those who have walked the path before them and achieved great outcomes in terms of their own careers and hopefully learn some lessons that you can use to enable you to accelerate your career to your heart's desire. Arate Executive is an executive recruitment company that I own that recruits CEOs, senior executives and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. Feel free to have a look at our website for further information about our services. You may all be also be interested in reading my book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, which I wrote specifically for senior executives wanting to manage their own job search process in this vastly changed market, in particular talking a lot about LinkedIn and how to actually proactively use LinkedIn to open up opportunities which are not necessarily available in the open job market. So that book is available as an ebook and a hard print book on Amazon and you can find again links to that in the show notes. You might also be interested in joining our LinkedIn group, the CEO Incubator, which has been set up specifically for people who are aspiring or incumbent C-suite executives and non-executive directors to be able to network with your peers across industry and also get access to job opportunities that Arate Executive present there before they get to the open market. Anyway, let's get on with our conversation with Andrea Staines and I'll introduce you to her now. Andrea Staines has had an extensive career in the aviation industry culminating in her role as CEO of Australian Airlines, an international Qantas subsidiary, up until 2006. At that point, she commenced her portfolio board career and has served on the boards of a wide variety of organisations. Her current portfolio includes being a non-executive director for QIC, Good Start Early Learning, and the New South Wales Transport Advisory Board. Andrea has a Bachelor of Economics and an MBA with distinction. She and her partner have four children and she lives in Queensland, Australia. Enjoy this conversation with Andrea Staines. Andrea, thanks very much for uh, joining us on the Arate podcast. It's excellent to have you along and certainly great to have another female guest. Uh, 
I found it uh, more challenging to encourage uh, women to participate, but we had uh, Kate Farrar, uh, I think I pronounced that correctly, from Q Energy on, uh, and uh, so from a CEO perspective, and now it's great to have you on as a CEO now in a true board portfolio. Um, so for the people who are listening, uh, perhaps just to start with, give us an idea of your current range of responsibilities. Well, currently, I've been a non-executive director, Richard, since I left Qantas nine years ago. And uh, for the last few years, actually, I've had a half-time portfolio while I was the academic tutor for our combined family of four teenagers <laughs> through uh, Queensland's version of the HSC. I'm now, um, currently, I'm on the boards of QIC Limited, the uh, Queensland-based funds manager. I'm on the board of Good Start Early Learning, which brought out the ABC Learning uh, Centres 650 centres from the ABC receiver uh, five years ago and I'm also on an advisory board for the New South Wales Department of Transport. Earlier this year I stepped down from five years on Horizon, mm -hmm. which formerly QR National, yes. so I was part of the board team put together to take that through IPO and transformation. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And just going back to your point, you said you've been on a half uh, uh, portfolio career because looking after your kids schooling. So were you homeschooling? No, I wasn't homeschooling. Um, I'm not sure I could have spent that many hours with them. Right. But I was the actual tutor for the mathematics, for example. Right. So, um, oh, great. And I, you know, I, as a financial analyst by training, that suited me. And yes. uh, I don't think it hurts as a non-executive director to sure. have my my mathematical brain as sharp as possible again. Yeah, and I suppose uh, you're investing in the future leaders of Australia, so in that regard it must be quite rewarding as well. Yes, yes, and, and I combine that with other things, economics, physics, chemistry okay. and languages. Right. Yes, yeah, uh -huh. so um, it, it was a very, it was an opportunity to have some something a bit different, uh, sort of like a half sabbatical, stimulating, mm -hmm. challenging, mm -hmm. but not with the everyday stress of an executive career. Fair enough. Okay, well look, let's uh, get back to where it all began. As you've listened to uh, some of my podcasts, I like to start by talking about people's early lives mm -hmm. and where they grew up and their family and so on. So why don't we start there? Well, uh, I grew up in country Queensland in a small country town called Nanango, about three hours northwest of Brisbane. Mm -hmm. um, my father was uh, self-employed, he, he had been a jackaroo and then funnily enough he became a legal bookmaker, okay. so that's probably where I get my mathematics from. Right. And my mother rem was and is a school teacher. Okay. So um, I think, what I, I've said repeatedly that um, being raised in a country town has kept me grounded mm -hmm. and I return there to see family and friends uh, and I, I think it we can talk about it later, but I think it led to me being a better leader. Right. So um, when I, I went to the local school and then when I was almost 16, the first turning point in my life was I, I won a scholarship, a full boarding scholarship to finish my high school at United World College okay. of Southeast Asia in Singapore. Right. So UWC will be known to some of your listeners, those who've spent some time in Singapore and it's part of a worldwide network of internationally oriented schools. And how did you win that? It was advertised in, I think, the Courier-Mail and it was okay. an application interview process right. over a period of months. I think I applied in April or May at the latest and by September I was in Singapore. Okay, and uh, obviously boarding there. Yes. Many Australians uh, in the uh, 
the school? There were, yes, the school was a co-educational international school from K to 12 and there were some, uh, half a dozen Australian scholars mm -hmm. uh, over the la each of the last two years of the school and then there were a lot of expatriate Australians but it was, it was there were 45 nations represented right. I think and okay. you know half a dozen religions and right. probably 60 languages. Oh, fantastic. It was an incredible, I did the International Baccalaureate which mm -hmm. some of your listeners will also be familiar with. With, through their children, and that was an amazing experience right. in its own right. And, and how was the moving from a very small country, uh, regional town in Queensland, to an international school uh, in a completely different country? Probably my parents were worried about it or more worried about it. I think I was actually too young to worry about it, okay. and I settled in quickly, and I absolutely loved the stimulation and the challenge, and it just opened my eyes to everything. Right. Geography, geopolitics, uh, religion, people, if you were asked what religion you were, you didn't say you were Church of England, mm -hmm. you said you were Christian. Right. Because you might have been talking to a Muslim or a Buddhist sure. or yeah. Taoist. So it, and it also opened my eyes to career opportunities. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so two years there? Two years right. doing and, international and, and what happened from there? So I came back to Australia and, and here was another interesting time in that because I, Singapore's in the Northern Hemisphere just, I was on the Northern Hemisphere timetable and when I returned to Australia back in those days, you'll recall Richard, university was much more rigid and so I couldn't start university for six months, mm -hmm. I had to wait. So I got a job in my country town working for my local GP and that was the job that convinced me that mm -hmm. I didn't want to do medicine. Right. So I'd been raised similar to others you've interviewed in, a, in an era where if you were smart you were channeled into sort of law or medicine and or similar and yep. there was no consideration in career counselling about your personality or mm -hmm. your passions or your you know attributes and so I realised I didn't want to do medicine and so I instead, I knew by then I loved math science so I tried engineering for a year at the University of Queensland and I have never detested anything in my life as much as that year. Right. Um, and then I didn't know what I wanted to do, again no real career counselling in those days. Um, what was it about it that you didn't like? What didn't I like? I, Possibly, I, it might have been the fact that there were so few females and I was a female. Females generally at that age are a little bit older, a little bit more mature and I was also a year older again and right. I'd lived abroad. Sure. So I think part of, partly it was the environment. Okay. Um, so, but I just didn't like the lab work. Right. It just wasn't me. Sure. Uh, probably not social enough. <laughs> so um, I... So I decided, thought, what am I going to do? And I decided to do economics. Okay. Absolutely loved economics. I think the mathematics helped. I never had any intention of doing an honours year or working in it, so I just enjoyed it, right. actually. It yeah. was an interesting experience. And at the end of my university years, I, I married an American whom I'd met originally in Singapore, and so I, I found myself in America. Right. And Were they a student at the school as well? <clears throat> yes. Okay. So I, um, yeah, so I had an interesting time at UQ, but I do, I do think, I do, I do take pride in myself in that I actually made decisions to do things out of the ordinary then without, in a, at a time when you didn't. Right, sure. Uh, so 
uh, childhood sweethearts, got married, moved to the US. He's my ex. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we lived in. I lived in the US for uh, ten years. Right. So basically, my twenties in the US, okay. and I. With economics then, I did have to find some work. So I ended up working in asset and liability management in an emerging area in a bank uh, in Michigan Detroit. Michigan National yes. Bank. Michigan National Bank right. in Detroit. Okay. Yeah. So that was really interesting. It was mm. led by a very <clears throat> bright manager who was doing some uh, innovative things with, with um, interest rates and interest rate swaps and so forth. And then after a couple of years, I decided to get my MBA. Mm-hmm. And uh, some interesting things there, that's actually where I discovered finance. Right. And so after four goes, I found what it was I loved to do. And my, my father once said to me, he said, you finally found your mathematical niche. Right, okay. What you actually wanted to work in. Sure. And um, I went back part-time to do my MBA to start with. Mm-hmm. So I did my first year, the first academic year of my MBA I did part-time so I was actually whilst working whilst working full-time so I would um, two nights a week I would commute 45 minutes from my home in northwestern Detroit south west to Ann Arbor Uh the home of the University of Michigan okay and so I got a you know that's one of the top 10 business schools in the US right so I was very fortunate that it was effectively in my backyard sure now I was commuting through uh, north northern winters so there were I do remember one one night I drove a kilometer down the highway and decided the blizzard was too bad right and that I would sacrifice that night's lectures <laughs> Fair enough. and drive home again another time I was coming home from lectures so they were from 7 till 10 in, in Ann Arbor and it's sort of so close to 11 o'clock I actually spun off the road right in the as I was exiting right I slipped on the ice so it was a really intense time sure. to work and study part-time but uh, it set me up to then apply to go into mm. their full-time course for my second mm. year and I imagine at that time Detroit must have been a thriving exciting place where as compared to now Correct. where it's uh, you know it's really uh, in terrible times isn't yeah. it? so Ford and GM were doing well then mm-hmm. so Toyota hadn't yet undertaken its sort of classic business school case study of um, of entering the US mm-hmm. piece by piece. So it was a thriving place, Detroit. Mm. Yes, yeah, very okay. pretty place. In fact, we went, my my current husband and I went back last year. Right. And we went back to the business school and, okay. and did a circle of the Midwest. And it is absolutely stunning. Oh, great. You know, six months of the year. Sure, least. okay. Yeah. And then, uh, so what happened from there? So in the United, I was very lucky because in the United States at the at the major business schools, the corporations come into the business schools to do a, a very organised interviewing process. Okay. And so I, after several rounds of interviewing at in Detroit on campus and then um, in Dallas, I garnered a, a role in the American Airlines MBA finance grad rotation program Mm -hmm. so that was very exciting Mm -hmm. that was the beginning of my love for the airline industry I think I knew I would like to work in the airline industry but I didn't realize how Mm -hmm. and so I ended up spending 15 years in the airline industry at American's headquarters in Dallas and then ultimately Qantas in Sydney and for those who aren't familiar with the geography of the US how far is uh, Dallas from Detroit uh, well, Detroit's at the Canadian border in the north, in the centre of the country when you look at it from east to west, and 
Dallas is not far from the Mexican border in the south. Right. So, uh, but also in the centre. Uh, a significant distance. Oh, yes. <laughs> a significant climactic dis- uh, distance. So we had no family reasons to stay in the northern climb, so we right. actually drew a latitude line across the United States okay. and said, anywhere south of this line that's suitable for playing golf right. and, and tennis, we will consider. Uh-huh. Are you a keen golfer? I Well, my ex-husband, my ex-husband is a very good golfer, right. so I learned to play decent golf. Right. I'm actually a very keen tennis player. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. And so uh, moved to Dallas and uh, in Dallas for... A little while? Uh, six years, I think. Okay. Working for American Airlines. Yeah. So I went in um, as a, a financial analyst and learned an amazing amount of material in in the American Airlines um, finance silo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, after, and I also, I did some task force work. So just sort of examples for people building their careers. I took on, apart from the basic um first role, which I was pushed into, thankfully, which was in the budgeting, where Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about microeconomics, unit costs and units of revenues uh, in the real world, I then did some task forces where one, two, three, we were six months at a time. The interesting things about those is that you don't know what job you're going to have at the end of them, so you just have to be confident in yourself. Right. That and, you know, just lap up the stimulation and the excitement of the work and be confident that at the end the company will find you another role. Okay. So it was the beginning of, I think I've taken, I talk to younger women sometimes and talk about taking risks, that you need to take managed risks in your career. And when mm-hmm. I've looked back, I've taken one every couple of years, I right. would say. And uh, I'm interested, uh, you started your career, you did economics, you loved that, you became a financial analyst, you, and you said, uh, your father said you found your mathematical niche. At what point did you start to become excited about having a broader general management slash leadership role? It was actually um, uh, pretty soon at American. I knew that you know when you're a female, you've got to take into account sort of um, your biology. And so I realised that by now I was about 27 or so. I realised that I'll probably have to start thinking about having children in my when I was 30 or a little a little later. And so what I aimed to do was actually get a managerial role at American mm-hmm. under my belt before I had children. Okay. And so I applied for a couple of roles and got them both. And then, but I took the one that was out. It was not the ordinary one. It was not the one that people normally took. It was right. a newly created role in a new area, sort of not in finance. But it was actually the beginning of me stepping out of the finance solo, mm-hmm. silo, like the CFO yep. uh, space, into what I call the the beginning, the theme of my airline career, which was the commercial application of financial analysis. Okay. So I stepped into the code sharing group, right. which back then was very, very young. Okay. And what does that mean? Code sharing is where is a way. Um, International airlines are generally constrained by national government's rules to not have equity in each other. And so um, the example I give is the airline industry and the car industry are both 100 years old. Right. There are about 60 marks of cars around the world and there are about 600 airlines. Right. Or, you know, hundreds if you go all the way down. And the difference is 
based on the fact that um, mergers and acquisitions internationally are not approved right. for nationalistic reasons. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. Yes. But uh, that makes complete sense. It, yes. And so the way to, the airlines get around it um, is they have formed these alliances with each other to smooth the transition from one international airline in one country to another right. international airline in another. And you know, many of your listeners will fly internationally and they understand the alliances I'm talking about. There's mm-hmm. different ones, one sure. world and so forth. Yep. So uh, code sharing is one of the things they do, which is so American Airlines puts its AA code on a Qantas flight right. and vice versa. Yep. And VA and so that's why when you're at the airport, you know, sometimes there'll be three flights on a board, but it takes 12 lines to write them. Right. Because the airlines are co-sharing on the same physical aircraft. Right. Okay. And it's just a way to share capacity, to share risk without actually having um, equity okay. opportunities. Okay. So how long were you uh, in that role before you took time out to become a mum? Yes, yeah, so I was in that role, I think, three years, two to three years, mm-hmm. uh, and learned a lot. I uh, had a really smart boss to learn from. And I was negotiating with him uh, in Asia, you know, coincidentally with um, Japanese and uh, Taiwanese, Australian Qantas Airlines. Yeah. So, uh, and then at the end of that, I uh, became pregnant with my son um, by design. And then when I had my son, much to the surprise of sort of everyone except myself, I resigned. So a US company still have and definitely had then very poor maternity policies right. of 12 weeks. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure if it was paid or not. Probably it was paid using um, various forms of leave. But yep. then there, were no, there was no option to take unpaid leave. Right. Okay. And so at 12 weeks, I decided I wasn't having someone else raise my 12-week infant. Yes. And so I resigned. Uh-huh. And so that, again, was, I guess, taking a risk, mm. you know. But it, for me, it felt the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you had a couple of years out of the workplace. Yes. Yeah, so at that time, um, we told my ex's company that we were flexible and would like to go international. Okay. And so we ended up fu- completely coincidentally back in Singapore. Right. And then, um, so I wasn't working, so I had my daughter mm-hmm. in, in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was about three years out of the workforce. And at that stage, my ex and I decided uh, we were getting divorced and so I decided you know I had to make a decision what I wanted to do sure so um, the packers came into the house and we were they were packing up half the contents right and uh, on the second day of three they said to me we need to know whether it's going to Dallas or Sydney right okay. we need to book the ship wow okay and so I said Sydney uh, because you wanted to be back in Australia closer to family? I or? think I think partly. My mm. family's in Queensland, but mm-hmm. um, I knew that Sydney was the place to go for corporations and particularly, hopefully, Qantas. Yeah. Um, I think it's like a lot of the, the Australian diaspora. We go abroad for a decade or two, but funnily enough, when we have children, we come home to raise them in the best country in the world to right. raise children. What do they say? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No. Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that's not uncommon. For mm. me, it was when they were smaller than I anticipated, mm. but um, for others, it might be as they're approaching high school. Right. Other families start sure. to say, now is the time to 
Oh, I come across those people yeah. in my business all the time. And diaspora, that's a nice word. You don't hear that in a common usage very often. No, um, a lot of people talk about the Jewish diaspora around the world. Okay. There's, an, you know, there's about a million Australian expatriates right. around the world yeah. forming the Australian diaspora. Right, yeah. okay. Oh, there you go. I've, uh, uh, I like learning new words, so that's excellent. Okay, so uh, back to Sydney as a single mum. Uh, and how long was it before you uh, got into your next career? Uh, I'd sort of call it the next company, being Qantas, probably the same career, three months, I think. Okay. Uh, I was intending to stay off longer, but quite rightly, I was pushed by a, a friend of mine. He worked at Qantas and said, no, 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 we're going to get you back into the workforce. And um, he helped me get my CV into the right people at Qantas, and I, I got a role at Qantas. So talk us through um, uh, how you stepped into Qantas and what the original mandate of that role was. Yeah. I think uh, one of the themes that you're talking about in your podcast, Richard, is the con and in your book, right. is the concept of the hidden job market. And once again, uh, this role wasn't advertised. I had met... Um, I was very lucky. Jeff Dixon was the head of marketing, the head of the marketing half of the Qantas company at the time, okay. and he had met me through the negotiations that American Airlines had done with Qantas. So right. there was okay. a link there, and he had me come in and work for someone who worked for him, doing the, uh, uh, some commercial strategy. So I right. did strategy with a commercial context. Okay. So looking at, for including looking at code sharing with Cathay right. Pacific and yep. others, which eventually came to fruition. I did some strategy. Uh, the small team and I designed the bare bones skeleton of what a Qantas low-cost carrier would look mm -hmm. like and put it on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Later it became Jetstar. Sure. But it was about doing some global research as to why others had failed in opening, other traditional airlines had failed in opening up uh, low-cost carrier subsidiaries and what we should do and what we should not do. If right. we felt the need to do it as a company. Okay, so can I just step back? So uh, you were on uh, Jeff's radar uh, so. And uh, and so was it a case you reached out to him and they created the opportunity yes, for you? Yes, actually. Right, okay. Yes. So, lucky. Yeah. I think Qantas was also at the point, it was just not quite three years out of government ownership, mm. so it had been um, privatised. Mm -hmm. And the advice given to me by a couple of people was that Qantas is looking to professionalise its... Um, headquarters mm -hmm. or it's analytical strategic financial commercial ranks mm -hmm. and you've got an MBA in finance you've worked in the US that's mm. the kind of people they're looking for so yeah. I think it was one of those it was a bit of a mutual benefit sure. opportunity yep yeah. but I think uh, if anything it gives validity to your thinking pre-becoming a mum uh, to take the path less traveled in terms of taking your leadership career into an unconventional sort of stream yes. um, uh, you created a unique uh, personal brand, I suppose, uh, yes. and uh, that's a, an excellent um, example of really uh, creating your career pathway through strategic intent rather than just kind of falling into it, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. I think so I, I remember a sentence given to me, a sentence of advice given to me while I was still at American by, um, well actually Craig Krieger, still a good friend of mine who's now the CEO of Virgin Atlantic. Okay. And Craig said, um, when you're considering the roles, consider the roles that add another tool to your toolkit. Right. So I very much looked for roles in different spaces and different places and with different 
bosses and, yes, jump sideways or diagonally as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so it it really uh, didn't take very long for you to uh, move significantly up the, into what was the chief commercial officer for a startup within Qantas. Uh, Quite a, uh, uh, I suppose, a risk in terms of taking that role potentially for you and uh, I'm interested in what was going through your mind when you were, uh, how did that opportunity come to be put on the table for you? What was going through your mind when you were considering whether you wanted to do that or not? Can I just go back one step? There, uh, yes, I had I had a fantastic eight years at Qantas. Mm-hmm. I, I really did. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I was given lots of space and scope, but there was one role between the commercial strategy role and the Australian Airlines roles, and that was running Qantas Revenue Management, and that they're tied together because what I did was, back to the hidden job market, and, and I found when I came back to Australia, what was interesting is that people would wait to be tapped on the shoulder for roles. Right. I was probably very lucky in that I'd spent my formative professional years working in the United States. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, didn't happen so much back then. Mm-hmm. Very much, People are very proactive, sure. managing their own career. That is the expectation. Yep. And especially in very large companies, which exist a lot in mm-hmm. the United States. It's, you know, the permutations and combinations are too complicated for the company to do it for every employee. And so I came back here and I laid, you know, those are the days before there was much on the intranet and I laid out the company written phone book and I mapped the organisation chart and I determined a couple of places at the next level. So I was a manager at the, I was a GM by then, but at the GM level in another space. And I mapped out a couple. One was to run the frequent flyer program and one was to run revenue management. Perhaps I was aided by being a little bit young and adventurous and confident. Right. Because it didn't occur to me that because I hadn't worked in those spaces that I wouldn't mm. be able to go and run them. Mm. Um, I think you get a little more tentative as you get older, but... I do I, think just that uh, being that uh, calculated about it, um, was that something that just innately came to you or had you read a book that made suggestions or had a mentor that suggested you planned your career in that way? No, I'm sorry, maybe that's not so helpful, that answer. Um, I'm a methodical person. I think what it comes from is that the way I learn is to ensure I've got the broadest context first and then I narrow down into the pieces I want to to see, to read about in detail. So for me, part of mapping the org chart was just understanding the Qantas group to start with. Mm. And then it had the added advantage of me being able to isolate which areas I thought I could add value in and that I wouldn't. I would enjoy. Mm. So it's about being sort of broad, focusing on the big picture to start with, understanding the concepts, the context, and then also being methodical. Fantastic. Um, methodical can be boring. Yes. It's not as instinctive and entrepreneurial as others might like to be, but I think one of the advantages is you get in earlier. Right. It, it just reminds me of that saying, make haste slowly. Yes. Because... Uh, by being methodical and being a bit boring, as you say, it allowed you probably to accelerate your career uh, more quickly than you would have otherwise. I think that's probably true. A couple of things. Again, my being raised, so to speak, in the United States in my 20s meant that there was an expectation that you would uh, that I would move every two or three years. That's very mm. common in the US. In fact, staying more than about seven years in one company is actually seen in the US as a negative. Mm. There's people. There are a lot more choices, right? It's a lot more cities to live in. Sure. And companies to but work. But a lot for. more people too. And a lot more people. About yeah. yeah so about 20 times. So. Mm. 
quite anymore. But um, the, you know, the other thing was that. So I was always planning what my next move would be. Yep. So when I went into one role, I anticipated a year to learn it, a year to probably operate it well at steady state, a year to change it, and then move on. Sure. And so you, you know, you might have in the year that you're learning, you're not thinking about the future, but then the next two years you have to put mm. some feelers out. Um, and what I said before is. Yeah, I think you get in earlier. So if you wait around until your chosen roles, in my case, running Revman, Revenue Management and running Frequent Flyer Program were sort of thought about or being filled or maybe advertised internally, mm-hmm. it was too late. Yeah. Yep. And so I, um, the, it was interesting. I did learn some patience. The, soon after I'd spoken to the hiring manager of the Revenue Management job, it was actually filled by someone else. Right. But a year later, he came and tapped me on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And so there had just been some organisational movements that had to happen that year before. As, mm. You know, I gave me another year of development. Mm. And so it's, there was no need to be despairing mm. because things were still happening behind the scenes. And you mm. don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So mm. if you're trying to improve your position in a cor- within a, internal, internally within a corporation, mm. you have to be proactive. You have to know what you want. You, you need to have assembled the right toolkit. You need to ask for the roles mm. because things happen behind the scenes before you re- before you hear about them, and mm. by then it's too late. Mm. Uh, I don't mean this in a negative way, but I mean certainly the balance between a self promoter and also being seen as a company person who's going to do their time and and earn the right to ask. How do you how did you balance uh, that effectively? I find that an interesting definition of company loyalty. Mm. Um, for me, company loyalty is about doing a really good role, a really good job in mm-hmm. your role, being prepared to roll your sleeves up if mm-hmm. necessary, or, or being prepared to be a leader, make hard decisions. Mm. Um, so I actually, I, I wouldn't advocate company loyalty in the way you've just described it. But there certainly would be people within organisations that hold that mindset, wouldn't there? I think it's changing. Yeah. Yeah, but at the time, I mean, uh, you're still a young woman, obviously highly ambitious. There must have been a few people in the business who are like, who's this uppity uh, person who's trying to, uh, you know, uh, leapfrog into senior role? Yes, that's possibly true. I did have someone say to me nicely, Mm. because he was from Britain, he said to me, (laughs) it's obvious you've worked in America because I was managing upwards as well, making sure that my boss had a weekly staff meeting, even though that wasn't. He right. was an older style manager who okay. wasn't, wasn't likely to do that. Sure. So, uh, look, I think if you believe in what you're doing, you can't, you, what is it? Don't die wondering. Right. Don't have any regrets. And yep. if the, you know, you don't want to look back and say, I spent too long in a place because I felt it was the right thing to do or mm-hmm. the wrong thing to mm-hmm. do otherwise. And so, as long as you're contributing, mm-hmm. I think you should feel, and you're not, and I'm a very respectful, courteous, compassionate person. It wasn't like I was um, stepping all over people. Yeah, you're not being aggressive. No, I wasn't. But being being assertive. I was being assertive. Sure. Okay, great. Well, let's uh, move on from there. Yeah. Now, the important thing was that that the person who tapped me on on the shoulder to run revenue management was a man by the name of Dennis Adams, who sadly has since passed away. Um, But Dennis... Uh, became was effectively became my informal mentor mm-hmm. at Qantas, and I was very lucky. I, it was in the days before people talked about mentors mm-hmm. and uh, coaches and so forth. And so he, but he became my informal mentor. So we did some amazing things for a couple of years in revenue management because of the entry of we had to because of the entry of Virgin Australia. 
uh, then Virgin Blue and uh, turning up, you know, tipping over the traditional revenue management apple cart, mm -hmm. so to speak. And then Jeff Dixon by now is the CEO of the Qantas Group and he actually tapped Dennis on the shoulder and said, we need to do a trial run of running a second brand right. at a lower cost. Okay. You know, we've talked about it, we need to do it. And so he asked Dennis Adams to do that and Dennis walked downstairs and asked me to join him. Okay. So when you asked what, you know, what did I think much about the move into yet another high risk area, mm. which was a new sure. subsidiary airline in another building away from the corporate headquarters and so forth, I was asked on a Friday afternoon and I said yes. Right. Not I even. did then say, oh, I better think about it over the weekend. <laughs> But I said yes on Monday. Oh, good. And uh, and so um, that must have been a really exciting uh, period of your career, uh, starting obviously a, a major undertaking from ground zero. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, so that was five years from the beginning of Australian Airlines to the end of Australian Airlines. Mm -hmm. um, amazing five years. It was like a classical business school case study. Um, I was very lucky. So I was... First, we, first of all, we did the business case and then we pulled together a small team and did the business case. And then after that, once the business case was approved within three or four months by the Qantas board, we set up the project team to start the airline. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was, took us about another nine months mm -hmm. and then we were in steady state. So after the business case was signed off, the sort of half dozen of us had, you know, had to be assigned steady uh, start-up and steady state jobs and that was when I found myself to be the head of commercial so the right. head of the product the route yeah what routes what what branding what customer experience on the ground in mm -hmm. the air and all of this you know at a low had to be done at a lower cost it wasn't a low-cost carrier they weren't the world wasn't ready for those internationally mm -hmm. um, we were only we weren't allowed to fly domestically because of the risk of cannibalization so we ended up deciding to fly Asia Australia and Asia was definitely not ready for low-cost carriers mm -hmm. So um, I became, became the head of commercial and I was very lucky again in that the informal mentorship continued and so not only did I have someone to advise me on commercially setting up an airline, the, mm -hmm. setting up the commercial aspects, uh, Dennis was very good and took me to all of the other negotiations, government negotiations, uh, Asian travel mm -hmm. agent meetings um, from Japan to mm -hmm. Bali. When you say informal mentorship, I mean, he was the CEO, right? Of Australian Airlines. Right. So there was a formal relationship and an informal relationship as well. Yes. Well, there was no such thing as a mentor program in Qantas. Right. That's how I would put it. Okay. But he um, took me to extra meetings that were outside the commercial space. Mm -hmm. You know, effectively, perhaps it had been discussed, he was setting me up to be CEO, a, a contender to be CEO of right. Australian Airlines. Okay. Right. So I was... You know, people talk about the importance of mentors. I was very fortunate to have mm, one mm. during my Qantas time. Mm. And a question I often ask, any formal coaching, executive coach type relationship during your career? Uh, no. When you work in the airline industry that has very, very low margins, mm -hmm. often negative, mm -hmm. um, the airline industry, ha in, I can't speak now, but in the past, didn't have money to spend on developmental. Right. So I've never had haven't been to a conference, haven't done a leadership course, right. haven't done... That's interesting, isn't yeah. it? I mean, in many respects, you'd think an industry that runs on very low margins needs to have the absolute best talent and really the cost 
uh, benefit and, um, equation of getting somebody yeah. in a CEO role coach is probably negligible uh, the cost in comparison to the benefit but you obviously uh, were able to achieve great things irrespective of that so yes I, I, look I am sure airlines do it better now as many companies do it better now mm -hmm. uh, but back in those days I think there was this especially in Australia there's there was this disdain for generic courses like leadership right yes you know if I if I'd wanted to go and do a course in hedge accounting perhaps that would right. have been approved but sure. um, okay. I'm sure that's changed yeah and so about three years in the role of CEO yes yeah, if you look years. back on that time and there's one key achievement you'd hang your hat on and you'd say this is why I was really good in that role what would that be Actually, I would say it was the fact that uh, Hewitt Associates, the global HR consulting firm, uh, when they did a survey of all of the Qantas subsidiaries, rated Australian Airlines as the top, as the most highly, with the one with the most highly engaged workforce. Right. And it was in the best employer category of their database. Fantastic. And so what was it about your leadership that you think engendered that? Um, I think it was the fact that I saw myself as sort of the traffic director, that my role was to hire people who were smarter than me in, in every one of the functional uh, areas and then was to harness their ability. Mm -hmm. Yes, ultimately, sometimes I had to make a, an unpleasant decision if we couldn't come to a consensus on something. And I was the one who was held accountable by Jeff Dixon for the performance of the route, the new route mm -hmm. or the new aircraft type or mm -hmm. the changes we'd made in the union agreements. But I think it was because I was very respectful. So even when I, I used to go out and do Q&As in the bases and the, the crew bases and they would be, people would come on their time off because they crew only work when they're flying and that when they're flying they're unable you can't talk to them so it's an interesting dilemma to communicate with airline employees but I used to say that everyone is important and in fact the closer to in the airline industry the closer to the day of the departure the least the the less important are the senior staff in mm -hmm. fact on the day of the departure of departure I'm the CEO was the least helpful person and in fact downright um, dangerous right. to be involved sure and so everyone has an important role to play and mm -hmm. I think that respect for everyone's roles mm. uh, is just one of the ways you can engage people and I used to get asked well why did I get pay more get paid more <laughs> and I would say because I'm responsible for all of you sure for all of your safety for all of the company's performance for all of your jobs mm. Uh, you know, I'm responsible for the decisions, but ultimately you're the responsible for the delivery and mm -hmm. I can't do what you do mm. and maybe you can't do what I do, sure. but we're all important. And I think it, you have to truly believe that. Mm -hmm. You have to be, uh, I think successful leaders are truly authentic and humble. Mm. Mm. If you are arrogant, people won't follow you. Mm. Mm. It's a... Uh uh, an interesting point and I uh, people often ask me because I deal with CEOs and chairs of organizations all day every day Richard what are these people like uh, and it's funny I think that when people reach that point in their career often a lot of that aggressive uh, ego which was necessary perhaps to take them there has been uh, uh, burnt off and so by the time people are in those roles certainly the people I deal with 
in the main are humble and uh, very respectful and, and uh, love to, as you say, gather great people and help them to achieve their own uh, potential, part of uh, what Arate is all about. So that's a, a great... Um, uh, that's a great illustration of good leadership. So what happened uh, to, I mean, that was your last full-time executive yes. role. Um, wh- uh, what led from that moving into a portfolio career? So um, so Australian Airlines had to prove two things for the Qantas board, and that was that Qantas could manage a second brand and that they could do it at a lower cost. Mm-hmm. Both things that, like British Airways, United Airlines and Delta, etc., had not been able to do, Continental. Mm-hmm. So we had proven that, and so the Qantas board gave the go-ahead to Jetstar Domestic, mm-hmm. which was a low-cost carrier in, in, in Australia, which was less constrained than they had had to make Australian in, as the test case. Uh-huh. And then uh, Asia became ready for a low-cost carrier to fly medium haul in and out of Asia, and so we as the Qantas Exco group said, mm-hmm. yes, Jetstar should go international. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Jeff and said, it's time to close Australian Airlines down. Right. It's done its thing. Yep. And I, I mean, there were 12 of us on Exco. When you vote, when you say the right strategic thing to do is to close down the subsidiary you're running, that means you don't have a role. Right. But. I had a, a decent, very decent package, and I had been a sole parent for ver- all but the last 12 months of that period, and I was probably tired. Yeah. And I'd also was conscious, probably from my US beginnings, that I'd been in the airline industry for 15 years, and mm. I felt that probably it was time to go to another industry. Okay. So I had some stars aligned. Yeah. And then. Um, so in the end, I sort of left Australian Airlines, I left Qantas, I left the airline industry, and then the last thing that happened was I left the executive world. Right. And the package allowed me to do that, and um, so my partner and I moved back to Queensland, and uh, I started a non-executive portfolio pretty much as my children were starting high school. And uh, what was the, uh, the motivation to... Uh, move into a portfolio career rather than um, perhaps take an executive role in a different industry? I actually think it was because I realised I didn't know how my children were going at school. Okay, right. So it was very much driven by being a more available parent. Yes. Right, that's interesting. And my, because I had raised, even though I have a wonderful partner now, I'm, I'm effectively, and my ex is in the United States, I'm effectively the sole decision maker and the sole provider for my children. And yep. so... I kind of have a bit of a schizophrenic, as an executive, had, had a schizophrenic life mm. of being an executive and then being a very involved parent. Mm. Um, I think often today executives need a flexible partner yeah. who can know what days the netball, right. the netball uh, training is and mm. can go to the store and buy the ballet shoes mm. or the rugby boots. And I didn't really have that option. So how did you manage that? I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are thinking, how does somebody who's a sole parent with uh, you know, two children uh, manage that responsibility and also be the CEO of a pretty big business? Um, I had a full-time nanny. Okay. I'm a very good delegator. Right. Uh, you, have to become, you have to become relaxed about yeah. sort of the home space and the workspace. So you actually have to trust people. Sure. And you have to hire people at home and work who are very capable. Right. So your role actually is to stay out of the detail. So that when I mentor, pe- informally mentor people, I say, 
Apart from the change to probably doing your own email now, if you're on software, mm. get off. Mm. Uh, and as I said, putting aside today's emails. Um, it, but if you're doing things, you shouldn't be. You know, CEO roles are, you, are really about stakeholder management mm. and stakeholders, including the employees, but also, you know, your role is to be talking to the stakeholders to whom a CEO should be talking mm -hmm. to, not to be talking to any stakeholders to whom your C-suite should be talking to, mm -hmm. unless you need to be brought in to mm. help in a, in mm. a crisis okay. or in a difficulty. So you have to be able to let go of the detail, mm. otherwise it buries you. Sure. So just being conscious of the time, yeah. and I'm, I'm uh, completely... Uh, you know, aware that you've had quite a broad um, yeah. board career uh, in that time, uh, which really is not a lot of years, to have uh, amassed some uh, really good um, senior uh, NED roles. How did how did you manage that? You're good for my confidence, Richard. I should talk to you more often. Um, again, you'll find you'll for that. You know, LinkedIn is up to date. You know, there's the list of my roles. I would say uh, I. Again, strategically aimed for diversity, mirroring what I did in my executive career. Mm -hmm. That I look for roles, I consciously looked for roles uh, in different geographies, different ownership structures. So that might be local, state, federal government, privately owned, you know, publicly unlisted, list, listed. So mm -hmm. I look for a diversity of, of ownership structures, geographies, and I did identify sort of two or three different industries when I left airlines and mm -hmm. said, well, airlines are my, you know, the leisure airline, Australian Airlines is about retail service mm -hmm. with, um, we, you know, through bricks and mortar mm -hmm. networks, mm -hmm. where else can that apply? And that's how I ended up a good start early learning in mm -hmm. childcare. Okay. And now, you know, I look to move further into that space. I also said, well, airlines are in transport, so I'd like to look at transport operators. Mm. So that's how I ended up, one of the reasons I worked for Horizon, which mm -hmm. operates trains. And also related, transport is also uh, available in transport infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That Australian Rail Track Corporation, Gladstone Ports Corporation, mm -hmm. Horizon, which mm -hmm. also has track. So there was some, some focus, mm -hmm. but I combined that focused industries, but um, diversity of other things like mm. geography and ownership. And again, it's about building a, a, a toolkit Okay. that can be then used to go lots of places. Mm -hmm. And lots of directors bring lots of different skills and abilities to boards. What would you say is your sweet spot in terms of your ability to make a contribution? Yeah, a couple. One is my commerciality, mm -hmm. because I've spent virtually my entire working career um, in commercial projects, assessing yep. commercial projects and mm -hmm. business cases and, and so forth. The other is probably my people leadership skills. And it translates in the boardroom, we are obviously not leading big teams, sure. in the boardroom it translates into being very cognizant of the employee side of the discussion mm -hmm. and also cognizant of the customer. Right. So I can think like an employee and I can think like a customer and I think that's how my people orientation mm -hmm. is helpful and useful, usable mm -hmm. in the boardroom. Mm, okay. And uh, how have you found, uh, I mean the reality is compared to the typical board director who's a man and they're you know uh, significantly older and so on what um, how have you found the appetite for you um, and how have you been able to I suppose create a unique selling proposition for yourself uh, when moving into that uh, space well we're back to the hidden job market again yeah um, 
again, it's about being methodical and dedicated with some focus, being clear about what your value add is. So sometimes you must work in areas that you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes it, you know, it makes a difference at exec and non-exec level. But you can't just go and decide you're going to work in areas you're passionate about because where, where that's the only thing sure. you know about them. Yep, yep. So you have to be very clear about mm. to yourself, very mm. honest with yourself about mm. what your value proposition is. And mm. that takes that takes some time to evolve in your mind and time mm. to check out with people like yourself, Richard. Mm-hmm. You know, am I thinking correctly? Is this how it comes across to you? Um, and so talking to a lot of people to get advice on mm. how you're seen or how they would see your CV mm. is actually very useful. And then it's about networking mm. and and networking is is understandably more necessary in the NED search space and the reason is that executives can be terminated in, you know in blunt in, in, to be sort of short sure executives can be terminated yep. when necessary mm-hmm. but non-executives it's cannot. It's very different. Shareholders effectively, theoretically, are the only people who can remove a non-executive director. And that doesn't happen very often, you know, mm-hmm. annual AGMs. Obviously, sure. it's not, you know, pressure can be brought to bear. So, boards are very concerned to find someone who's going to come onto the board and perform and fit and challenge but appropriately because if they find if they find someone who doesn't fit it's very difficult for that person to be you know asked to leave yeah and i think that that's a great point and why i think there are a lot of people who are an aspiring non-executive director they've finished their executive career uh, they have gone and done the AICD course and they're thinking, righto, I'm ready, uh, come and get me boards. But mm-hmm. there's this, um, I suppose, dissatisfaction or, or angst about, well, the chair's often recruiting from within people that they know. Yes. Um, and that kind of prohibits me from getting on the radar. But what you're saying is, I mean, the chair and the board need to do that in many respects because of exactly the point you've made. Once people are there, it's they're there for a long time. You've got to have that cultural alignment to make yeah. it work. And it's obviously, it's not a perfect way to go about things and it is changing, but I think one has to accept that that is part of the reality. Mm. It is changing in that there are many, many more companies and using search firms for non-executive roles. And mm-hmm. institutional investors have put the pressure on the publicly listed companies to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. But many, many family-owned, you would see a lot of this, Richard, family-owned, publicly unlisted, um, privately-owned companies are also using search firms. And so part of the networking is to network with the search firms sure. to make sure they know about you and they've met you in person. They can have an hour to assess your personality mm-hmm. and your mm-hmm likely attributes in a boardroom Mm -hmm. and the other thing I think it dovetails with um, actions through my whole career is you have to invest in yourself Mm -hmm. so I do um, because I'd like to work in you know in a national portfolio I I do spend time and money flying to Sydney and Melbourne events instead of just staying here in Queensland yep great advice I think that uh, people think of that word networking and they think, oh, that means I need to go to AICD events and I need to, you know, collect 30 business cards and so on. And that's the kind of networking that personally I hate. Um, What you're really talking about, if I'm hearing correctly, is identifying what are the actual organisations whose boards I'd like to join 
and how do I connect in with the people that are going to be making those decisions and get on their radar before they know that they need me, which is a far more strategic kind of networking, isn't it? It is, mm. it is. And um, you can combine it with the professional services firms, um, you know, consulting, search, banking, investment banking and so forth, mm -hmm. accounting, law. They often have um, boardroom lunches where they bring together a group of board directors. So there you can actually you can express yourself, you can illustrate the kind of board director you might be mm -hmm. uh, just through the questions you ask at the lunch mm. and you can watch other people how they do that as well. So it's a slow burn. Mm. And I, I note that you're uh, involved in the uh, Chief Executive Women yes. uh, Group in Australia which yes. uh, uh, is obviously a resource to support females achieving their full potential. Uh, you, I imagine you've got some involvement with women on boards, would yes. that be correct? Yes. Um, so there seems to be a lot of resources out there to support aspiring uh, female CEOs and directors. Have you found those uh, to be particularly useful for you or are you more on the other side where you're uh, looking to help those who are, are wanting to step into similar situations? As yourself, uh, different. It's it's different. The answer is different for different stages of my NED career. So, women on boards is uh, more for women who are in the early stages of the NED career, and so mm -hmm. my involvement then and now is to do be part of the support network yep. there, yep. Uh, speaking or mentoring and so forth. Uh, Chief executive women is more broad it doesn't focus on any d's no. we're just trying to get more women pulled mm -hmm. through to mm -hmm. really pulled through to the c-suite mm -hmm. and then ceos and then directors there's mm -hmm. this definite um just doing the numbers means you need to have women more successful in staying in uh, executive roles mm -hmm. for longer and higher roles and that will help with the ceo and any d mm -hmm. roles the numbers um so i think it sometimes it's just nice to go to some of the women-only functions. They are cathartic for women for us okay. to discuss the different challenges we have from men. Uh, so it is the support is, is two-way, I think, in, mm. in most of these organisations. As always, you get, you, you get out of something what you put into it. And so I'm, I'm an active member mm. of both mm -hmm. and I give a lot to support mm. others and I get back, at other mm. times, I get back support. So mm. um, I think, yes, you don't just join and hope that things will happen. You have to actually... Sure. And so uh, let's look to the future now. I mean, it must be uh, an interesting sort of time for you. Your children are getting older, so yes. probably some of those uh, drivers to be more available yes. are not necessarily as critical anymore. What effect does that have on your view of the next, say, 10 years of your career? Well, it means for me now I can ramp back up to a full-time portfolio. Right. Uh, I don't have to be as available on a day-to-day -day or week, mm -hmm. weekend to weekend basis. Sure. So I'm looking forward to, well, increasing the diversity in my portfolio right. even further. No desire to get back into an executive role? I, I sometimes think about it, but the world has changed. It's it's 24-7. Yep. Um, I'm enjoying... One of the things I enjoy about board work is the professional diversity mm -hmm. and the personal flexibility, mm -hmm. or two things. So I'm not sure you get either of those as an executive, and I've really enjoyed the ability to, for example, I now read macroeconomics articles. I read okay. much more broadly as an NED. You have to. It makes me a better NED, but I really enjoy that. I read the, the weekend papers in detail. I read The Economist. Okay. I read economic and financial history books. Um, 
So I love that ability to actually be, I think, better informed mm. than when you are so focused on your company and industry mm. that all you read is sort of the the um, the financial report. Yeah, the, the morning media right. summary that's yep. based on the keywords of your industry and sure. company. Yep. And that's a very narrow, I remember reading mm. those and you read them over breakfast or lunch and that's a very narrow area of focus. And mm. I thoroughly enjoy having, working with, in you know, I work with different companies in different stages and in different industries with different people, with different backgrounds and incredibly, incredible achievements. Mm. And I find, and I can read non-fiction to my heart's content, and right. I find it thoroughly stimulating. Oh, that's great! I suppose uh, that's really your way that you're developing yourself on an ongoing basis. The mm. fact that uh, you enjoy reading those things and uh, must make it a lot easier than having to, uh, you know, sit down and go, "Oh, I've got to read the Economist this week," and I really would rather be doing something else. Uh, but obviously, you really enjoy it. It's probably helpful. Yeah, you know. I, finance and economics, it's probably helpful that I enjoy those as an NED because mm. they obviously contribute to sure. having being able to bring a broader perspective to mm -hmm. maybe strategy sessions, yeah. for example. Okay. Yeah. And so for those people who are listening who uh, um, uh, look at your background and they admire what you've achieved and they would like to emulate you know, in their own lives uh, some of the things that you've achieved, what, what would be the core pieces of advice that you'd offer? Uh, methodically network, take risks, invest in yourself, time mm -hmm. and money. Uh, succinct but powerful. Yeah. <laughs> and so before we finish up, uh, you're a busy lady and obviously uh, your professional life is really important to you, but what are the sort of things you enjoy when uh, you're not working? Uh, I've now that the now that I have some more time, I'm now playing tennis two or three times a week. Okay. So it's a combination. I need to find something competitive to right. keep me fit. Yep. And I love tennis. Um, I also, I speak a modicum of Spanish because my ex-husband is also is half South American. And okay. so my goal is to be bilingual. That's right. one of my life goals. And uh -huh. so I try to fit Spanish in. I enjoy it because it takes... I enjoy it because it's the only time probably where I'm not methodical, where you have to actually be a little bit on edge and out of control. Right. If you want to um, communicate verbally in another language. Okay. And, and that's uh, good for me. Sure. Are you teaching yourself or do you go and have formal lessons? I teach lessons? myself. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's some good resources around yes. to do that now, isn't there? Yes. Great. So that's, yeah. That's, that's your thing. Perfect. Excellent. And so uh, before we wind up, uh, is there anything you'd like to add or anything we haven't discussed that you were hoping to uh, bring to the table? Actually, there is one topic I think is really important and perhaps by default more important for the female listeners, and that's about wealth management. Okay. So the one thing I would like to encourage all people to do, as I'm doing with my 20-year-old now, is long-term wealth management, to make time for it don't spend to what you earn. I had the oldest car in the Qantas fleet. We were paying, you know, we had to self-pay. But I had the oldest car in the fleet. I had a small house, but I put money, but I maximised what I put into superannuation mm -hmm. and I invested in residential property. Mm -hmm. It's about, I have created some options for myself, like to work half-time because sure. of my long-term wealth management focus starting when, probably when I was 30 mm -hmm. and 33 and returned to Australia with two small children and some mm. savings. Mm. I don't think people spend enough, put aside enough time to think about their long-term wealth management. Mm. I'd have to uh, agree with that. And it's interesting when I'm interviewing people and 
I say, well, what's your driver for looking for a new role? Well, look, I'm on 400 and I'd like to be on 500. And I think, well, if that's the only motivation, then uh, it's a bit sad, really. Um, uh, I think uh, lifestyle forces people into roles which perhaps they don't really want and perhaps they're not very good at, but, you know, they've uh, created a situation where they have no choice. Um, Much better to, as you say, live a, uh, a more constrained lifestyle because it gives you the freedom and at the end of the day time is the only asset you can't get back isn't it correct great advice well look um, i listen to a podcast regularly by a guy named mark Marin. Uh, he's my favorite podcaster and at the end he says to the guest are you good are we done and so are you good andrea yes excellent very good Thank oh you, Richard. good well look i really enjoyed the conversation and for those people who are listening i'll put in some uh Uh, show notes, uh, connection to Andrea's uh, LinkedIn profile and uh, some of the boards that she's involved in. Thanks very much for your time and uh, have a great afternoon. You too. Thank you. Well, Andrea Staines has a truly inspirational story. A lady who has been able to manage an extremely high-powered and no doubt very stressful executive career whilst also being a successful single mum, and then taking that career into the board space is something that I'm sure a lot of the listeners, particularly female listeners, who are looking to emulate that type of career, will have found fascinating to listen to. I've thoroughly enjoyed that discussion, and I hope you did too. I look forward to engaging with you again with future Aritate podcasts, and in the meantime, have a fantastic day.